Hello again, and welcome to Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. I'm joined today with my brother, David Scott, and we're going to be talking about Jamar Tisby's new book, Color of Compromise, and it came out, I think, about two, three weeks ago. David, you read this, so why don't you tell me first a little bit about who Jamar Tisby is, why we are discussing him, why he's important, and then tell me a little bit about his book. Give like the 30-second synopsis. Well, uh, first of all, you're welcome for reading the book. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anybody else that's listening to this, I have, um, I've, I bit the bullet for you. Um, we did the hard work, so you don't have to. David did the hard work. Yeah. Exactly. So who is Jamar Tisby? Jamar Tisby is a young man. He is uh, sort of up and coming in the, I guess we could call the social justice wing of the reformed. Uh, the Reformed Church. He's, I believe, he's Presbyterian. He went to, um, he went to Reformed Theological Seminary, but he is very active in a lot, of, a number of evangelical denominations. He's a sort of a, a prize speaker right now. Mm-hmm. Masters in history. Uh, that's his. Uh, those are his credentials. He's working on a doctorate, but even just with the masters, I think it's because of sort of who he is and what he talks about. Um, yeah. He's all those his name on every conference, you know, front page of the Gospel Coalition. Um, he is a, um, he's a, he's a hot item right now. I know he went, or he's going to Mississippi, uh, well, the Ole Miss. So, um, and they're known to be quite on the, how do I say this? They're on the social justice side of things. They're definitely more progressive in their history department there. But, uh, so, so he's the reason we're talking about him, though, as you just pointed out, is because he's active in a number of different denominations. I think he's he's Presbyterian, right? If he went to Reformed theological, and in fact, um, one of the history departments I'm familiar with uh, just recently did a, a faith and history conference of some kind, and he was the keynote. So a lot of undergraduate history students from Christian universities went to Calvin College last year. And I know this is not the only conference that he's done, but he he was the keynote at this conference. And I, I heard about some of the things that he said there this is before his book came out. And uh, it was a little shocking that they had grandstanded him, so to speak. Grandstood him. I don't know how you say that. But, uh, yeah, so why don't you tell us a bit. What? Grandstanded. I'm the one with the, with the master's uh, name. Yes, yeah, you're the English guy. So, yeah, I just have a, a AA in English, I guess. What about? Um, yeah, so that's what he does. But what about his book? His books. Don't, I know it's been in a local paper where I live, uh, in a secular paper, so people are paying attention. What does it say? What kind of an impact is, is it having? So this is this is really his. I mean, he's young. I'm sure he'll do a lot of things in his life. I, you know, wish the best for him uh, as, as, uh, as long as he's doing good things. But um, this is kind of his seminal work as far as it's the expression of really the only thing that he talks about, as far as I can tell. Uh, it's, and if you, if you watch um, his a speech that he gives, a talk at a university, or even just a, a, a two-minute clip, you know, the Gospel Coalition had, had a particular video. Um, I think it was like, what? Uh, what do you wish Christians, white Christians, knew about race or mm-hmm. or, or understood about race? So his basic um, uh, 
sort of concepts that he, not only that this book is essentially entirely about, the whole point of the book, but also the concept that he is forwarding and he's seeking the forwarding is the idea that, um, and he says this in the introduction, is that racism uh, never goes away, it just adapts. And those are the exact words. He says that's that. That's his thesis. That's his thesis, but that's not just for this book. Like, that's just his thesis, just period. Whatever he's doing, that's his thesis. Racism doesn't go away, it just adapts. So this is okay. the historical, his historical uh, pr proof text to demonstrate that that's the case. Now, does he go back, uh, I know you'll give us more in a second about the book, but is he, does he go back to the Reformation? Because I know he's done speeches on racism in the Reformation and things like that. No, he really doesn't. The book is, is very, um, in fact, that's one of the things that I think is a, a weakness in it, is that it's so entirely America-focused, which I get, like it's a book about America, it's a book about the American church, but it's, um, it's very American-focused. Uh, it's, it's, um, uh, it's very monolithic in that way. It doesn't really extend beyond the confines of the American church um, that much. Okay. Uh, so that's his thesis. And uh, how does, what does he use to support it then? So really what he does is most of the majority of the book is a, um, it's really a historical narrative piece. So I love historical narrative uh, books. Those are kind of what I read in my, uh, my, my leisure time. Uh, the little tiny bit of that that I have. Uh, but historical narrative books are, can be done really, really well. And he's not a bad narrative writer. Like his, his, his you know, it's, it's, it's peppy and it's sort of kind of nice to listen to if the topic was nicer. But um, it's basically a narrative piece that uh, is tracing a sort of a thread of racism from colonization to present day. So what he's seeking to prove is through a lot of generalizations, very generalized, it's sort of a lot of generalization and a couple little specific things picked out here and there. He's trying to prove that uh, America is racist, always has been racist. It was founded on racism. And the church, you know, the whole point of his thesis is since racism never goes away and the church right. is complicit in it, the church is sort of the fault in the way of, uh, of the, the, the Christian evangelical church, at least the white church. And that's really what you get as it starts to go is it's really, this isn't a, it's, you're talking about the white church specifically. <clears throat> well, there's, whew, you don't even know where to start because there's just so many things in just what you said that would be interesting to probably pick apart. I mean, the idea that this country was founded on racism. I mean, did he actually, he argues for that, that this country was founded, that was the idea behind the United States? Well, he, he, it's a slave, it's slavery. So slavery oh, okay. started with slavery. And then you go, he goes back to um, the Puritans. Puritans have slaves. He talks about Whitfield. He talks about Edwards. Um, right. He uh, talks about the slaves who came into Jamestown and sort of, uh, and he actually, he does mention, he makes a lot of passing mentions of the treatment of the indigenous people. I'm not sure when it became indigenous. It used to be native American sometime in the last, five minute change to indigenous peoples. Um, so he makes a lot of references to indigenous peoples, but essentially um, there's white supremacy was a start and it is the, it's been like that the whole time and it is still that way. Um, and the church has helped, helped it along all the way. Okay. So why don't we do this? Give us a preview of his solution to this. So I'm assuming there's a solution. It's not just 
because it sounds very depressing at this point. You're saying, well, racism just never goes away. It changes form. And the United States is thoroughly racist. It's because of the church or the church is complicit in it, I, I suppose. Uh, does he give any hope? And then why don't we go back and discuss in detail his solution and the evidence he uses to support his thesis. So where's the hope? Well, even before that, I would mention uh, when I first tried to pen just some some notes about the book after I finished it, um, there was, I, I, want, I always want to ask myself, when I read a book I really don't like, I always try to ask myself, what did I like about it? What was good? There's got to, you know, you have to be able to take something away from, um, from whatever you're reading. So he makes a statement at the beginning of the book, which is interesting. He says, um, which I really appreciated. He says, all, yeah, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but um, all characters in history, all people in history are nuanced and they are full of contradiction. And so they're not going to line up exactly how we um, think, you know, we'll, we'll try to put them in categories, but they don't necessarily line up in those categories. And I thought, wow, that's really good because that's um, something that you don't see much in history today. Usually it, we live in an age where it's, you know, you said something 35 years ago or you did something 35 years ago and that one thing paints your entire persona today. Like it marks you and there's no grace or anything. So I thought it was nice that he said that. The only problem is he doesn't really – he mentions it, but then he doesn't carry it into his narrative. So uh, Jonathan Edwards, for example, is um, is a you know great theologian, a great pastor. He's a great example in all these ways, but he was involved in the slave trade. He had slaves. That marks his entire, essentially marks his entire ministry and his entire character. Um, so there's sort of like the slavery and racism are the uh, that's that's the sin that you cannot commit throughout the book. If you commit that sin, then you sort of your whole legacy is destroyed. So um, uh, that was the one good thing. The other good thing, or it, at least it could have been a good thing, but it doesn't end up really being a good thing. The other thing that I thought was kind of nice was he doesn't uh, he spends the majority of the book kind of castigating the South, and this gets into more of the historical narrative. But um, he castigates the South for slavery, obviously, but then he actually spends an entire chapter where he talks about the complicity of, uh, of racism in the North, and he talks about a, several different um, examples. It's what he leaves out. He leaves out the most blatant racist movements in our country's history, um, and he just doesn't even mention them, or if he does, it's as a, um, it's as sort of as a, a weapon to beat the right, so the Christian right with are you, you talking know, about scientific racism? And I mean, that was a northern kind of Philadelphia uh, development that Southerners opposed strongly. Or are you talking about those like pre-evolutionary ideas, Darwinian ideas that eventually um, became, I guess, eugenics and, and the rest of it? Is that what you're talking about when you say the most blatant form? I, I mean, I would consider eugenics. I've taught history for several years. Um, on the on the secondary level, and I remember the first time I taught through uh, American history, and you're looking at racism, and you're looking, and then you get to the eugenics movement, and you read the statements of the people who were to the founders of the movement, and it founded blatantly on racist principles, so much more than anything that you ever encountered before, more than the antebellum South, more than uh, the colonial era, and Tisby doesn't mention it. He doesn't mention eugenics at all. Wow, that's actually shocking if it's a book on racism and complicity in America or the church, and he doesn't mention eugenics. Does he mention Margaret Sanger at all? 
Nope. Margaret Sanger is not mentioned at all. Not mentioned. That's thoroughly really shocking. The whole thing with abortion, though, and that was one of the most infuriating, I guess, parts of, of the book is if you're reading a book that's supposed to be by an evangelical Christian uh, talking about um, you know, the sin of racism, then you would think abortion would be at the top of the list. More, uh, uh, more black people have been killed by abortion than, as far as I know, pretty much. Oh, no, yes, it's not even close to anything else, yeah. Right. So, so, but he, and he, it's not that he doesn't talk about abortion, he does, but he never mentions the, you know, the, the demolishing of the back, black family because of abortion, and he only talks about abortion in reference to uh, like it's virtue signaling by white Christians. So white Christians will pretend that they care about blacks because, you know, they rally to abortion or they'll pretend they care about oh, morality. Rally to but he doesn't, he, there's no, um, there's no actual vilification of abortion in and of itself as a racist means to exterminate the black population, which if you read Margaret Sanger, you listen to what she was advocating for, um, you know, that would be your takeaway. So there's that. There's also, um, there's also eugenics, you know, Planned Parenthood. Uh, I mean, those, those things kind of flow out of one another. Um, but he really doesn't, he really doesn't talk about them. And, and what's so interesting is rather than talk about that, because we're talking about the, early, the progressive era, so the early 1900s, um, it's not that he doesn't talk about that era. He only talks about lynchings in the South during that era. So we're only going to focus on these incidents in the South, which only black lynchings. I'm assuming he doesn't focus on all the, the white lynchings or anything. Black yeah. 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 So here's a question. Um, I do want to get to what his solution is eventually, but since we're already getting into the weeds here a little bit, uh, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. I'm assuming he mentions Whitfield. Yeah. Uh, been the whipping boys lately, and um, Edwards, both Edwards and Whitfield were treated their slaves, as far as I know, with deep care and concern. In fact, uh, Whitfield was very, I mean, you can credit him with introducing slavery into Georgia, but he was highly critical of the slave trade. In fact, he he preached sermons also against mistreatment of slaves, very much wanting to, um, if you're going to have slavery, do it within the confines and regulations of a biblical law. And uh, they were imperfect men, but Edwards would have been the same way. And does he get into, is there any uh, attempt to mention that, at least give them the benefit of the doubt on that, um, talk about what the Bible has to say? Because, I mean, obviously the Old Testament Hebrew slavery system was regulated. It wasn't, it wasn't wrong in God's eyes, biblically speaking. He, he regulated it. And then, of course, the Greek system, we have Philemon and... Um, the instructions uh, for slaves and masters to get along in, in a certain way that honors the Lord. And so it seems like in the New Testament, too, there's a regulation there as far as how slave masters are supposed to treat slaves. But uh, it's never actually condemned as far as something that should be like there were there's no abolitionists in the apostles or the prophets, not like we think of an abolitionist. So Edwards and Whitfield seem to fit nicely into that tradition in a way, or at least in their minds, they would have thought that. Does he give any kind of consideration to maybe how they were looking at the Bible and that maybe being a legitimate way in their time as men of their time to look at it or no? Uh, as to like 
systems of justification, like theological systems of justification, or, um, uh, you know, he spends a while talking about the misinterpretation in Genesis of the, uh, the mark of Cain, or the curse of Cain. Right. Uh, that being used as a sort of a... But that was used, that was more of a Puritan thing. Uh, that was, it is, I mean, he spends a lot of time on that. That was, because um, Edward... But he does, as to the nuances of the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament texts, yeah. and just the idea that slavery could potentially not be a sin in any circumstances, he really doesn't give any credence to that. Evil, it's racist, it's wicked. Um, Jonathan Edwards and George... Is it proof text? Is there any Bible verses to back any of this up? Very little. There's not, there's not, a, there's not much in the way of scriptural exegesis, but it's not, that's not the book. The book is tracing this thread of racism through the history of the church. It's not really dealing with, and he, he mentions that at the beginning of the book. He says other books talk about the, you know, theological issues. My purpose is to prove that the church has been complicit in racism. That's kind okay. of his, his thing. So he really doesn't talk much about the, the theological, um, like he talks about Dabney, for example, the, uh, um, Robert Louis Dabney. Yeah, but he on, only sort of to use him as the example, like, look, this was the South's, you know, scriptural justification. They had Dabney to justify the white supremacy. And Dabney is completely vilified. There's no nuance given to Dabney at all. Oh, that's really uh, sad. There's, there's a lot of good things that could be said about Dabney. Complex man, just like Edwards. But uh, Dabney, in fact, makes arguments in the defense of Virginia in the South, essentially trying to say he, he has the welfare of African-Americans in mind and um, kind of build, he shares with the Union Army and the policies of the Republican Party, how harmful they were. But um, I'm sure he doesn't mention that, Tisby. Um, so, yeah. so let's uh, give me some of the I don't want to get bogged down with Edwards, Dabney or uh, Whitfield. But how about Reagan? You want to get yeah, bogged down with yeah, give, me, give me like the top three examples that are just like outlandish. The Ortizby gets way, he's wrong, just flat, flat out wrong. Uh, so my favorite one was Ronald, is Ronald Reagan. Uh, he, he, he sort of vilifies Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is, uh, a, is sort of painted as this, this white supremacy figure, which is very strange, especially considering that uh, Ronald Reagan was actively speaking out against uh, our, at the time, ally, South Africa, because of apartheid. And he was, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't afraid of sanctions, really. And he wanted to support South Africa, but he was, he was very outspoken in his um, condemnation of apartheid. Uh, so he, he doesn't, I'm not sure where, where, uh, um, where that came from, or should, I should say, I wasn't sure where that was coming from until uh, I got through that whole chapter. So, in the uh, during the civil rights era, there's a town in Mississippi. I'm blanking on the name right now, um, but there were several. I'm sure you know it. Several civil rights uh, leaders who were murdered. I believe there's oh, Selma, Alabama, or no, not Selma. It's in Mississippi. Um, but there were several civil rights. I think there's three civil rights. It was a very famous case. Uh, and Ronald Reagan started his campaign in this same town. Uh, it's um, in the first 1980 bid for presidency. So um, Tisby sort of paints it as a, for lack of a better term, a dog whistle to the right that he starts his yeah. campaign in this. I think you're talking about Philadelphia, Mississippi, probably. Which, which one? 
Philadelphia, Mississippi. That may be it. At the uh, Neshoba County Fair. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So, and and his his justification for why this is a dog whistle to because the event happened. You know, you're talking quite a bit before. You know, over well over a decade before he starts his campaign there. So. What is it? I mean, lots of civil rights leaders and lots of people have been killed all over the country in all sorts of different places in all sorts of different ways. So why why is this particular racist? It's because when he gives his speech at that county fair, he talks about states' rights, and so we know that states' rights equals racism, oh my slavery. And there's really there's no nuance to it. It's just it's you know there's lots of reasons why people support states' rights. There's lots of it's not just because of racism. But well, right now it's sanctuary cities and legalization of pot. So <laughs> right, right, right. Especially after yeah, especially after Trump. Suddenly everybody loves states' rights. Uh, so uh, he, but it's because he's made this case so long, and that's where I think his history starts to get really sloppy because he he make like he's starting to build a decent case in the beginning of the book, but as he gets along, you know, he starts to push these assumptions farther, and and that that to me that was the point that. And it was almost at the end of the book, but that, that was the point where I was just thinking. Yeah. So Reagan, everybody who supports states' rights because states' rights is racist. Well, in Mississippi, it definitely is. So everything is racist. Everybody is racist. Uh, um, every every movement from the conservative right is racist. There's no, you know, there's no two ways about it. Okay, give me another example. If you is there another one that is fun to talk about maybe or, or just interesting. Well, I, I always like how um, it doesn't matter if it's a movie, like a documentary, you know, uh, like a Ken Burns film, or it's a news story uh, or, a, or a book about the Civil War. Everybody has to mention the infamous. Cornerstone. Um, what's that? The Cornerstone Address? Or no? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, oh okay. But uh, no, uh, General... Uh, Bedford. Oh, oh, Bedford Forest, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a very very short little mention, but um, you know, there's no mention of him after the war. There's no redemption. I think that's the main thing. So Bed Bedford Forest, you know, he talks briefly, makes a mention of you know he committed these atrocities, and uh, he was kind of a violent madman, and he was okay. you know, the KKK and all these things. But then he stops there, you know, and we don't we don't know about the rest of his you know, the rest of his, uh, his life, like he rejected the KKK that he advocated for, um, civil rights for black. The one that issued an order to disband the KKK, that was him. Right. So there's no redemption. There's no redemption in this, really in this worldview. Uh, if you were ever racist at any time, there's no, because why? Because racism never goes away. Right. It just adapts. And that's, that's um, I want to focus uh, just for a moment on this Bedford Forest thing. So, I mean, it sounds like that could potentially be almost slanderous. Some, he's not here to defend himself. because He's obviously dead. But this is a man who um, has a complex life. He was a slave trader for a little bit. But even in that, he was more or less ethical in a sense that uh, I'm comparing him to the other slave traders. He would not separate families. He was known to be more of a, a gentler sorts. Um, but of course he was a rough and tumble Scotch Irish guy who got into fights. He wasn't a Christian. And, uh, but he, he respected women. That's actually one of the big things about him. He was always willing to defend a woman's honor. And that's actually how the Port Pillow thing ended up happening. 
Um, and I, I don't want to get into too many details here, but it's, it's very debatable. It's in fact very unlikely that he really knew what was going on at Fort Pillow until after it had happened. Uh, but he, um, after the war, ends up uh, becoming almost like a, a sort of an early civil rights activist in a way. I mean, he makes this speech in Memphis um, with a, it was a sort of an early civil rights organization. I forget the name, but he kisses a black lady at the end of it. And, um, and, he, and he becomes a Christian and he, he's known, his slaves were the ones that fought with him. He frees, I believe, 18 of 20 of them. And a lot of them just want to come back and live with him and share crop after the war. And he's known to be a very merciful uh, and kind-hearted. He's not a master at this point, but he's a property owner and he has sharecroppers. So um, I don't know. They, they, that's just a very brief overview of some the complexities of Nathan Bedford Forrest. But yeah, I mean, this guy is kind of like the original, was he the first grand wizard of the clan? But the clan at the time was different than the clan we think of now, um, not justifying it, but it was, it, it's more complicated, I guess, is the point. And you're saying that Tisby says at the beginning, everyone's complicated, but then he just kind of... He doesn't allow for the complications. He, he, he doesn't but he doesn't allow for any complications, really, okay. if we're a racist. He's just a racist, that's all he is, and we're not going to focus on, on his anti-racist remarks, especially towards the end of his life. Yeah, okay. Which, which I think what's, what's disturbing about it is that it's coming from a Gentile. So... We're supposed to be about grace. We're supposed to be about, you know, our whole worldview is predicated on the idea that people can change. Right. You know, that that uh, there is hope and that change is, especially if you're a form, change is not just possible. Change is inevitable. If right. You, if you come to know Christ. So um, there's allowance for that, but it's contingent upon the color of your skin, it seems. Because if you were a... If you were racist at any point, well, that's racist at all points. And it's not just you, because the whole, again, the whole point of this book is that, um, that the, the church and sort of whites at large were complicit in this racism and white supremacy. So even if you were, uh, you know, so really, even if you were an Italian immigrant that came in, you know, and your, your grandfather came in in 1924 to Ellis Island, uh, you're not off the hook because of the color of your skin makes you sort of complicit if you didn't, you know, fight for justice, um, if your grandfather didn't fight for justice in, in your lifetime. So it's the original sin. The original so sin but cannot be expunged. The color of compromise is white. Yeah. That's the color. That's the insinuation. Yeah. Any other things that you'd want to mention, not about the solution he has, but about the evidence he uses to back up his claims that the church is racist or America is fundamentally racist, that that's kind of what they're about. Any other thoughts? Well, I, I think, I mean, this is, this is kind of a general thought, so it's not, it's not super specific, uh, but there's a, there's a conflation between, uh, between individual and personal responsibility and collective and, uh, you know, sort of group responsibility. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from. And the whole, the whole idea that racism never goes away, it only changes. Well, if you're talking about society at large, and, you know, to be more specific, he talks about, right, first slaves come into Jamestown, and so then we have slavery there. And the South becomes sort of dependent, economically dependent on slavery. So there's an example there. And uh, there is a, an attitude because of majority culture and where the power is um, that perpetuates what you could argue is white supremacy. Um, but there is, 
there's the group and then there's the individual. And the responsibility of the group falls on the individual and the responsibility of the individual falls on the group. There's not a whole lot of allowance for, uh, for the sort of personal decisions that, you know, individual people are making throughout their lives. Robert Lee is a good example of that. He really, interestingly, he doesn't, and this is where it's specific, but interestingly, he doesn't really get in much to Robert E. Lee. Because uh, Robert E. Lee uh, a um, Achilles, yeah, he's kind of the Achilles heel because he's an abolitionist. He's fighting uh, for the South, but he's against slavery. So, you know, so you have examples like that. So he just doesn't really get into them. He doesn't get into Stonewall Jackson, who's teaching high yeah. school. He doesn't get into these things that are going to, um, uh, that are going to throw a wrench. Just, just a, a, when you said, because the audio cut out for a second there, you said Robert E. Lee was an abolitionist. I think, did you mean to say more like a gradual emancipationist? Because I, I think Robert E. Lee wouldn't have been like a northern abolitionist type. Well, right. So when I say abolitionist, yeah. I mean, I'm just, I mean, against slavery. Okay, so he's a gradual emancipation. He doesn't like slavery. Yeah. He wants it to go away. <laughs> I know, I know. He I doesn't just, want it here anymore. In case anyone wanted a nitpick, I just, I just have to. And oh, people thing, always love to nitpick. Well, I have to say this. I have to say this. So we want to make it clear to anyone watching this who's seeing us laugh. We're brothers, so we're going to laugh a little bit. I mean, we do take this seriously, and we do think, we both think that the slave uh, trade um, had it was, it was horrific, and slavery itself had many great sins attached to it. Um, we don't, we're not endorsing that at all. Uh, we're not endorsing, you know, the way the Jim Crow laws in the North or the South. Um, we're, racism is disgusting. We Absolutely. don't like racism. It's the worst. It, it, it's the worst. But what we're saying is, I think it, you can tell me if you agree with me or not. But I think in all forms. It's wrong, and that's the moral component uh, to it. And we think Tisby is sounds like, uh, from what you're saying, he's kind of like only focusing on he's, he's cherry picking. So, so morally speaking, he's not getting the full picture, which puts him in a position where he's actually even maybe slandering brothers and sisters in Christ from the past, misrepresenting them to forward his narrative. Uh, the other thing is he's not being. It sounds like a good historian, and I want to read something. This is um. This is a quote from Tisby from a talk he gave last year at a seminar, I guess, at Calvin College. And he says, Confederate monuments kneeling during the national anthem, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, we live in an age of protest and reform. College students often stand at the forefront of these movements by lending their energy, passion, and creativity to virtuous causes. But the problems of today arise from circumstances in the past. Today's activists must pursue a deep knowledge of this nation's history especially as it relates to race and justice, in order to change the present and the future for the better. That quotation was given at a conference for Christian historians, undergraduates who are history majors. And, and I'm assuming there's probably some poli-sci majors and so forth, but he's speaking to them as a historian. And hey, if you're going to be a historian, this is what you need to do. And there's a, I'm going to put this in the info section. This will be the first link Actually, this will be the second link. The first link will be, David, your, um, you wrote a little short blog about Tisby's book. That'll be the first link. Second link will be another blog written by Samuel Smith, who is a historian, and he critiques this quote from Tisby because he was at the conference. And I'm not going to read his whole critique. You can read it yourself. But he, he basically says, history answers the what's and why's, and it does not really answer the oughts. 
And he critiques Tisby for becoming, for, for not looking at history with an eye to understand as much as looking at history as kind of a treasure trove of quotations by which to further a political agenda, which is not really the way a historian should activism history. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, there's a place for, you know, obviously um, using historical examples to further things, but um, he's, this is Tisby revealing what he believes about the craft of history. And that's not really how history is. It shouldn't be how it's done. You shouldn't be telling people that are going to go on to possibly be historians that, you know, you basically use this for furthering social justice. That's just going to destroy the very, um, the very discipline. So, uh, so those are our, our critiques. Did you have anything else you want to add to that for critiques for the way he uses history? Well, I guess just briefly, being a historian, I love history. History is fantastic. It's great. It's wonderful. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's the best, probably the best discipline ever, ever in history. Um, but ironically, but what Tisby is doing is no one ever wants to talk about the Civil War. Why was there a civil? No, right. Why was it? Why was it? Why did it happen? You had one side wanted to build a wall, keep the North out. They said no. They said no people like that coming here, so they came down. Um, oh boy! <laughs> uh, what the, the main thing is just that it, it really at the end of the book because he makes so many suggestions uh, at the, at the end. That's the whole point of the book is to like, well, how do we move forward from here? Given that the church is ra- that the church is racist and that America is racist, given that, how do we move forward? And so it's a call to activism. And since the majority of the book is about slavery and, and what came out of slavery you're sort of left with just like, wow, you know, you kind of just feel yucky at the end. You're like, wow, everything's terrible. And that's, you know, it's just the worst. Wow. Everything. And it's still so bad. And then you kind of zoom out a little bit and you start to think about it. And you're, you're like, I mean, if the activism is so important, then why did not Tisby write a book about slavery? How about today? Like that there's more slaves today than there's ever been. And that the country of Uzbekistan still Picks cotton, ironically, cotton with slave labor to this day. And that the country of Mauritania has an estimated up to 20% slave population. And that just last year, there was videos taken in Libya of slaves. Well, they're, they're probably all obviously white Christians that are doing that, right? No. Exactly. That's the problem. That's the problem. So it's, it's, it's hard to take the narrative seriously. You know, you're, it's, it's, it's just so bad and the effects of it are still being felt. And you kind of think like, yeah, but the slavery is still going on. Like, there's going all on all over the place, and it's not even just that because you have the whole uh, the whole trafficking um, uh, issues that are going on, even in this nation. So um, that's not to say that he, obviously he cares very deeply. Um, but whenever whenever people, I would call it virtue signal, vir- or vir- virtue signaling about um, things from the past, you always wonder how much do you care about these things in the present that are happening right now. What about that? There aren't mentions, those aren't in his suggestions for, because you would think, you would think if, if it's a, a narrative about, you know, how bad slavery is, that the sort of carryover would be, all right, let's oppose slavery today. That's not it. It's reparations. He talks about reparations in the end. So we're getting into the solution now. So solution okay, number right. reparations. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so his solution's at the end of the book. It's a good segue. Um, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm summarizing a little bit, but basically, quotas. 
That would be one thing. We need to see, you know, something that would demonstrate that we've moved past race or that we're dealing with racism. Affirmative action. Yeah, it would be. We need to see more. We need to see more black voices, black opinion. We just need to see more black. Um, so affirmative action. You know, he doesn't. Um, he doesn't specifically use the words affirmative action. It's basically what he's lobbying for. But not affirmative action. He's talking about on an individual level, which he makes some good suggestions. He's saying, know people. You know who, with with different perspectives, you should get to know people. I completely agree with that. You should get to know a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives. It hopefully will train you to. Uh, defend yours better um, or change if you have bad perspective so that's a good suggestion personally but then we throw it at the entire church and say the church needs more uh the, you know the church needs just more color you know i'll go down to my church i go to a very diverse church and i look around and i say it looks pretty diverse to me you know like do we need more asians oh wait no because you know, their income right we don't need we, we need less of them actually because we need more more Indians. We need about four more of them, and then we'll be. And then you, you're getting into just ridiculous land. And ironically, what it does is, I, you know, some I'll walk into church, look around, and think to myself, "How many of this race do we have?" Which I never have thought that way my entire life. But because of all this instigation, now I'm actually being programmed to think that way. And that, to me, that actually brings out racism. It doesn't fight it. It actually brings it out. So that. Does he at all, I think I know the answer, but does he make any advocation that like maybe black people or um, other ethnicities should enter a white church and become part of it? Or is it just white people need to welcome in? Or obviously we do need to welcome in, but is it is it one-sided? Is it just white people need to accept minorities in more? It's, it's, it's sort of, it's not specifically one-sided in the way that he talks about. Oh, that's good. Decided, but well, it is though because uh, because because all the, the the blame is put on on the whites. You no, know, that's bad. <laughs> only positives in the black church, only negatives in the white church. It's it's a you know because he spends a while talking about like here's all the things that the black church have to offer, and I'm thinking, yes, they have rhythm. We have none. <laughs> Appalachians and the Appalachians, they have a little bit of rhythm because they play bluegrass. New Orleans, they have some because they're you know got a lot of all sorts of different. Like the right, right, right. <laughs> are, are beautiful. Those are those are awesome. Those are fantastic. I've worshipped in many black churches and loved it. Um, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that that they have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. You know, it means there's cultural differences, which hopefully sure. get together and and love and celebrate, and that's all fantastic. I mean, it should also be said there's theological differences. I know when I was in seminary, there was a lot of people that were professors there saying, "Hey, we need to." what's the problem? Why do we have churches that are segregated? But then they went to the whitest churches in town and they would wonder why aren't, you know, why aren't black people coming? It's something that you only really hear in white churches. You, you yeah. in white churches, you know, they're, is they look around and say, why is it so white here? It's like, well, I mean, you could go somewhere else. Like you don't have to. But, but my point would be the other options that I knew of in the place that I was, there really weren't like black churches per se that were theologically in the same tradition that believe the same things. There was usually a prosperity issue, like a prosperity gospel, or they, they were more towards the Pentecostal side or so, you know, it's just, there were not that that's all wrong, but they're, you know, not, I shouldn't say wrong, but not that it's all um, an essential issue in every way. But it like, when I have a church that doesn't believe those things, that believes what I believe, like I'm, I go there based on theology. That's what I'm trying to say. The choice, for me to go to a church is going to be based on what they believe, not on the color of the skin. I don't even think that way. Um, 
And I think a lot of the professors that I knew that were advocating for diversity in the church, they, they, um, like never mention that, but they're making those same choices. They're going to churches because of theology. And, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's weird to me. Just, it's like, you have to almost get your mind. Like you were just saying in this like new way of thinking where that you have a prism, almost like a glasses over your eyes and you're just seeing race all over the place. And you like take off your theology glasses, take off like whatever other glasses you have and just see race, which, um, that sounds like what you'd have to do almost if you want. I think it is. Uh, I mean, it, and it becomes very difficult not to do that when, when there's some, because really I think for a lot of people, and that, that's why this whole social justice movement is just, it's going to produce racism. I really think that's what, that's what's so sad about it. It's the whole idea is we need to deal with racism and the effect of that is going to be, it will produce racism because it's going to, it's going to train people who uh, have grown up in a actually a really nice time where people are, kind of programmed not to consider race, but only, right? That was Martin Luther King's dream. It was just based on the content of the character. And I think there have been people that have felt that way probably for like ever. Uh, it's just that, you know, there's, there's, there are all, you know, every, every culture, there are, are, are uh, attitudes that are ungodly. Just, it doesn't matter where you go. Um, the guy needs to read a little bit of Thomas Sowell, I think, because he has some good things to say about. Um, yeah. About that, but that really gets into the sort of the just very America focus because the book is, you know, it's about America, but it, like, if you took this, oh my goodness, if you took this to like India or China or in my, my own experience, South Africa, my goodness, the, the, uh, the number of colors and it's the rainbow nation down there. So the number of colors and the number of you know, this group oppressed this group, and then this group oppressed, and the Zulus slaughtered the British in Islawanda in 1877, and then the, the board, you know, then the British oppressed the board, and, like, everybody hates each other and loves each other. So, um, you know, if when you try to export this, it gets, it, it gets, uh, it gets very dicey. But the other, the other part of, of the, the conclusion, so the part of the conclusion that was, I thought, the, for lack of better words, the most preposterous was the idea of reparations. At first glance, you know, because he, he kind of talks about, he, he lee is leading up to reparations. He doesn't want to jump right into it. So he kind of talks about, like, we should get to know, here's some personal suggestions. You should get to know people who look different than you. Different than you. So we're all going, okay. And then he gets to the, uh, then he gets to, like, what he's leading up to, which is, now this is controversial to talk about, but reparations. Um, and so if you think about reparations as in, I don't know, you meet a guy and somehow we find out that uh, my great-great-grandfather owned his great-great-grandfather as a slave and never paid him. And he somehow has worked out how this is, has affected him. And I have the money to pay him. Uh, and, you know, he doesn't want to forgive me. Maybe we can talk about something. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the church specifically giving... Um, basically finances. He's talking about redistributionism. Can I ask a, a question? I'm going to cut you off for a second. Sure. Would he be the recipient of any of these reparations? I have no or, idea. I'm just I wondering. No uh, I don't know. <laughs> he already is to me. I mean, yeah, yeah. he's prominent. He gets, I mean, that's where, you know, Bodie Bauckham will talk about the social justice being this multi-billion dollar industry and, uh, Book sales. Know, yeah, well, he sold me. <laughs> So, so anyway, I'm sorry. Keep going. So, so, so the reparations 
if you're talking about if you're talking about reparations on an individual level, um, you know, it's it's something to be talked about. It's kind of ignoring the verse in James though that talks about how mercy triumphs over judgment. I think because the reason why we don't really talk about things like that that much is because forgiveness in Christianity there's the idea that forgiveness is much better than uh, you know than I mean kind of than even justice because that's the whole point of Christ is that Christ forgives and that we uh, we let's say escape justice we uh, you know we are um, covered by him so really we're covered from justice. Uh, but in Tisby's world, there's no, there's really no forgiveness, you know, so for the, for the crimes, our collective and personal crimes as, you know, I guess you could say for me as white people in the past, um, we have, we got to keep paying, you know, we need to pay uh, from our finances, you know, and he does talk about that. He talks about even like government reparations, um, you know, so if you're, you're talking about on a personal level, that's one thing, but if you put it on a government level, you're, you're, that's Marxist territory, not in Marxism complete Marxism. And not only is that, uh, I would say, not biblical, it's also very bad for the people receiving the reparations. Very bad. Um, welfare state or entitlement mentality. Yeah, entitled, uh, getting free stuff really doesn't help anybody. I, I, really, you know, I, I can't think of an instance where it really does. This is also very messy because I'm just thinking about the different diverse groups in America, immigrants who came here. I mean, Oh goodness! I mean, we we different groups would owe different groups. Uh, the North owes the South for Sherman's March, maybe, and you know, people in New York uh, City owe money to people Italians who came here or Irish uh, in Ellis Island for their discrimination against them, and um, you know, the Native Americans obviously are owed a lot. Uh, the various tribes, but I mean, it gets so sticky because well, not even that though. Just think about this on. Think about this on an, if this is in both individual and collective, okay, you are a historian sort of by trade. Uh, I am a amateur historian, I guess you could say. I mean, I, I, I I'll, 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 I'll say amateur. I'll say amateur. I don't want to take okay. a historian. Well, I'm a history teacher. I teach high school history. Um, so we're both, we're both history professionals in our own way. Right. I don't have a book. I don't get to do speaking tours and I have a master's degree. I don't get to do any of this. Why does he, get all this recognition. That's not fair. You know, I have to work two jobs to get by at this point. I don't understand. It's just the attitude of it's not fair. Right. Yeah. In the past, somehow it's not fair. Now we could, we could, you know, but that's, this is the problem. Is it individual? Is it collective? Are those the same thing? If racism never goes away, if it only adapts, well, I'm not really sure what the whole point of this to begin with was because there's nothing I can do to get rid of it. So, so Tisby refutes himself. I, I would, from the very introduction of the book, that was my first thought. Racism doesn't go away, it just adapts. We're talking about a culture, that's true. Racism doesn't go away until the new heaven and the new earth, sin will always be here, and racism is a fact of life. Just like lying, stealing, you know, uh, murder, adultery, we will see it, you know? Um, if racism, if that's personal, that's individual, uh, then there's no point in writing this book at all because there's nothing you can do to get rid of the racism within you. It just adapts, it just changes. So, but that's not really, that, that's not the Christian message. The Christian message is it doesn't have to be this way. If you are a racist, you don't have to be a racist anymore. Uh, you know, if, if you are a liar, you don't have to be a liar. Real quick, is there a difference 
I'm sure Tisby doesn't talk about homosexuals, but with rhetoric, um, I think there's a difference. But do you think there's a difference between the way we treat the sin of homosexuality, described as a sin in multiple places, and then the sin of ethnic pride, or if you want to call that racism? Uh, Because with homosexuality right now, it seems like there's a lot of books being cranked out there in evangelical circles that are saying we have to love, love, love. The church has gotten this wrong. We're not compassionate enough. And then you have the sin of racism, and that's like condemn, condemn, condemn. Am I reading that right? Well, it, that's a good point. He, he, uh, in the beginning of the book, he anticipates what the objections against his narrative are going to be. You know, he mentions them very, very blatantly. He just says, you're going to read this book, and people are going to say, there's, two base, there's basically two objections that people are going to have. One will be, you know, this and that about the historical narrative and, you know, is it really accurate? Is he blowing things out of proportion? The other one is that this is just, you know, Marxism. This is Marxist thought. This is, uh, you know, the same thing. We've heard it before. He never addresses that objection. He says that it's going to be an objection, but he kind of just lets it hang there and says, like, this will be an objection. But he doesn't explain why it's not Marxism. So, I mean, is it Bible verses trying to support his Marxist ideas? Like, uh, no, not really, not really. But he, okay. he, he, um, uh, you know, in anticipating the Marxism, um, by the end of the book, it's pretty clear that it is basically just Marxism. You kind of think, well, you could have written this book and called it, you know, the sexuality of compromise, you know. Because really, you could have taken the whole narrative, you could apply it to, to homosexuals. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a class against class narrative. It's group against group. Um, oppressor oppressed. Yeah, oppressor versus oppressed. And uh, you could really, you know, fill in your blank. I mean, he makes a lot of allusions, a lot of mentions of the treatment of women. So he's already accepted the, the sort of feminist narrative as well. Because a lot of the time, it's treatment of blacks, treatment of indigenous peoples, treatment of women. You know, mentions a lot, mentions a number of times, right to vote, women's right to vote, their struggle for the right to vote. So right. this is the, the sort of the feminist, or at least the first wave feminist movement as being equative to, uh, to the civil rights movement and um, uh, other, you know, similar movements that would claim to be in the same vein, which would include the gay rights movement. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we could certainly go on for a long time about those things, but uh, final thoughts. Let's, uh, I think you've already talked about the dangers of this, um, but your man on the street, your layman in the church who gets a hold of Tisby's book, um, if he's going to read it, which maybe by the end of this video, if, they're, if someone like that's watching, they're going to be convinced, hopefully don't, this isn't worth your time, but let's say they read it. Uh, they just, they're curious. Um, one sentence, what should that person be looking for or watching out for? I don't know if I can do it in one sentence. How about two? Can I do it in two, two sentences. Two? Okay. So sentence number one, if you want to understand the woke church movement, read this book. <laughs> so you're endorsing it now. Okay. <laughs> In a way, I mean, if you want to, if you want to, if you, if you want to, if you want to understand the presuppositions behind woke church, you got to read this book. You have to read it. Okay. That was one sentence, wasn't it? That's right. I get two. You got uh, one more sentence. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> a lot of, so I'm going to take both. Uh, 
So the other one, oh, no, now I forgot what the other sentence was. I guess I only needed one to begin with. Okay, do, do we, um, we've been critiquing Tisby here, but uh, I mean, does your heart go out to him? Um, it does, it does. Oh, now I remember my other sentence. This is why my heart goes out to him, and this would be the, the number one thing I would say about this book. Tisby's Christianity is not an actual redemptive move or a redemptive movement. It's not something that actually brings change to people in society. Uh, it's something that the Christianity is not something that reforms society because it's been several hundred years and it hasn't reformed. It's only, it's really, his book is Christianity has made things worse. If you were an atheist, this is a, uh, a nice little, uh, a nice little box of ammo, ammunition against Christianity, because uh, it's, you know, it, it's sort of a vindication of, of or a vilification rather of, uh, of Christianity, because Christianity has not helped racism for the, you know, for, for the history of this. Yeah, state. so it has no power. The gospel hasn't seemed to really make any dent. Uh, I mean, which is the reason the slave trade ended. I mean, we could go into like Christianity kind of undermined a lot of these things he's complaining well, about. Well, we could also compare slavery. I don't want to get into more history again. But we could also compare slavery in the United States to that of Brazil. The oh, yeah. I mean, I, I Islamic slavery. Say, you hit the jackpot if you ended up in America in a way, if you were a slave, just um, not that it was all good in every way at all, but like compared to the horrible conditions you could have experienced other places. Yeah, you're right. Um, but so the, the, the downstream from this, let's say people read this uh, or accept the arguments in this and uh, they have children and they teach their children, you know what, the history of the church is just this racist history and you're part of this horrible tradition that's oppressed women and blacks and I guess other minorities presumably and uh, I mean, what kid is going to want to keep being a Christian? In my mind, I would just rebel against that faith and say, okay, well, I'm not going to be part of that. That sounds horrible. I'll start my own thing or be part of a different religion. So, I mean, that, that would be my concern. Um, and I don't think Tisby wants to go there, but I don't. I don't either. I think Tisby, I think Tisby seems to have a, you know, have the understanding of, of the gospel. He, he talks in the beginning of the book about how, you know, that he said, he says at least that Christianity is the you know solution, not the the problem. So he makes it he makes it very clear to his credit. He makes it very clear this is not you know it's not atheist ammo. It's it's not meant to be uh, that the solution that he's an Orthodox Christian and he believes in Reform tradition and he believes in the gospel. Um, but at the end of the book, you're, the question that you have is why do you if it has no impact or effect on the history of this country if everybody's supposedly Christian. You know, if all these white people are Christians, but all they do is oppress, then why, then why do you buy into this religion? You're sort of left with the idea that, um, just, I guess, I don't want to make generalizations, but black people would have been better off if they never would have come to, to America. They would have been much better off in Africa. Um, and uh, it's, it's, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, then there is a plan. There was a plan to this whole American... Uh, you know, experiment. Uh, there, there. Um, it's a, not. It's not all bad. It's not. You know. It's not all bad. Yeah. It's not all bad. But we shouldn't be surprised by the bad. We should be surprised by the good. Right. Right. Yeah. So human depravity 
is at work, but God is also at work. And, uh, and he's shown how he can even redeem institutions that um, have evil connected with them and use them for his purpose, which is, I think, even slavery fits into this, using that to introduce the gospel uh, to people. That doesn't justify the institution, but it definitely shows that God had a plan or is working. So, all right, well, that was excellent. Uh, I'm glad that you shared with us some of those thoughts. And uh, I've read, I've looked at some other reviews and things. And uh, uh, I think um, a lot of them, the, the reviews are looking at kind of the solution and critiquing the cultural Marxism or critical race theory. And uh, they, they don't, they kind of ignore though, I think the first half, because most people have now just kind of, they kind of buy this <laughs> narrative, this looking at history through this racialist lens. So um, I'm glad we were able to at least address some of that stuff as well. And uh, I would ask, you know, where people can find you, but I think they already know. Just go to worldviewconversation.com and you have some things there uh, written there. Uh, The first link will be your blog on this book. And um, is there any parting thought that you want to tell anyone, like a knock-knock joke or something? I don't know. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Just just that... uh, Christ and the gospel can change uh, every 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 nasty, brutish, bad part of us. Uh, there, there is power to change in Christ, um, and I, I hope that that's something that Tisby will um, realize as, as time goes on. Um, and uh, uh, that's really where that's really where the only hope is. I think you probably. Uh, he probably believes that, but that's what's that's really what's most important is that um, that if you have Christ, then you really can move on from the worst of circumstances that can be forgiveness, um, because mercy triumphs over judgment. So, Amen. Well, thank you for joining me and discussing that book. We'll see you later. For Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. 
It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.